Tonight we begin a two Sunday night uh, series in James, and uh, actually originally it was going to be a three Sunday night uh, series uh, entitled um, Living Faithfully in View of the King's Return, and it uh, turned out to be a two Sunday night deal. Um, I know, kind of should go without saying that you know that there is no way in the world that in two Sunday nights we're going to be able to cover all of the book of James. Amen? You guys know that. Okay, so... Let's remove that expectation, all right? But the study was never designed to be um, exhaustive like that, okay? The study was designed to be kind of a broad, general survey of the book of James. And uh, that's what we're going to be doing these next uh, two Sunday nights. Um, I'm actually going to be preaching through the whole book of James in Veritas this summer. So if you hear the same title, okay, know that you guys, the title for Sunday night was first, all right? And the, the Veritas thing came later, all right? So you guys were priority, all right? Um, and so what we are embarking on is a survey of the book of James as it pertains to the implications for our lives as disciples, as followers of Christ, all right? Um, a few years ago, I did a conference, uh, a team of us from the uh, ministry that I just came from, we did a conference in, in the city of Guatemala, Guatemala City. And uh, the conference was entitled, What's, What is the Gospel? So there were about 150 leaders there. We had teaching, we had singing, we had fellowship. And um, at one point, I made my way to the back of this church building. Uh, nothing compared to Calvary Bible Church's building, trust me. Uh, it was a smaller place. In fact, this little auditorium here was probably their whole church, okay? But more beat down. So I make my way to the to the back, looking for the bathroom, go outside. And as I'm making my way to the bathroom, um, I'm looking for where this place is. So I ask a little old lady who's actually on her knees, off to the side, bucket of of warm water, soap, and she's basically washing dishes and uh, washing utensils for the food that night that we had just eaten. And uh, so I went up to her and I said, do you know where the, where the bathroom is in Spanish, right? And she says, yeah, yeah, you know, it's right over there. So she points over there. And I asked her, hey, what's your name? No, I hadn't seen her all night long. And uh, she told me her name. She was about 70-something years old. And uh, we started talking a little bit, struck up a conversation with her. And she told me that she had been in the Lord for 45 years. 45 years walking with the Lord in her 70s. And uh, she talked to me about the Lord and how special He was to her. And as I, as I heard her speak and tell me about her life and her walk with the Lord, it was very evident that a lot of her service, her Christian service, was very much in the background. She wasn't an upfront kind of person at all. She loved to serve Jesus a lot. And she did stuff in the background, never wanting any credit for it. And I said, it's wonderful to know that you have been faithful for so many years, I said to her, just affirming her. And you know what her response to me was? You know what she said in Spanish? It's the least I can do. Being faithful to my Lord is the least that I can do in light of His faithfulness to me. Isn't that precious? That is so precious. Her faithfulness was the least that she could do. Faithful living for her Lord Jesus Christ who had done so much for her. And that is really what we want to talk about, beloved, uh, these next, next Sunday nights. All right? This week and next Sunday night. What does it mean to live faithfully 
in light of the king's return, in the light of everything that God has accomplished in and through Christ and the sufficiency of His sacrifice for us to the glory of His Father, what does it mean for us to be faithful? All right? And I want to say this to you up front. I said this to the men yesterday because I think that the more I, I counsel here at our church and the more I've done that in the past, and even for my own life, I want you to remember, remember, remember that God's acceptance of you is not based upon your faithfulness. Do you understand that? I want to be very clear about that. God doesn't accept you based upon what you do right before His eyes now that you're a believer. Alright? God accepts you based upon the faithfulness of Christ's person and finished work. Don't ever forget that. The more I interact with other fellow brethren, and the more I shepherd my own heart, and the more I hear people talk, the more I see us focusing upon the fact that God is mad at me right now because I am not being faithful to Him. And we see God as this ogre instead of our Heavenly Father. God doesn't accept you based upon your own faithfulness. He accepts you based upon the faithfulness of who? Jesus. Right? Jesus. So whatever we talk about in terms of faithful living these next couple of Sundays, remember that as a believer, Christ has already accomplished what you couldn't accomplish. Christ has already done it. We don't need to seek to please the Lord in a, in a way where we're trying to get Him to somehow accept us. Christ has already pleased Him on our behalf. Amen? He has already done it. And yet we have a responsibility, as we will see, to be living faithfully in the light of what He has done. Because He has saved us unto good works. So that we might be faithful to Him in the power of the Spirit, guidance of His Holy Word. Amen? So remember that. So the title of these next two Sunday nights is Living Faithfully in View of the King's Return. We have a wonderful salvation that is secure, and yet... We have been called as disciples to be faithful to the Lord. And the other danger, one, is this whole issue of, may, of basing your standing before God and your acceptance before God on your own faithfulness in what you do or you don't do. The other danger in our study in the book of James here, this survey study, is this. We are constantly as believers going from one extreme to the other. Two pendulum swings. Let me tell you what I mean. I think that Galatians 5 and 6 speaks to this. We are constantly either swinging to one end of the pendulum that I would call legalism. You can throw in self-righteousness in there. All of us do it. Think about your own life and your own Christian walk. We swing to the side of legalism and self-righteousness. Legalism essentially is an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. Because we begin to think that we need to add something to what Christ has done, whether we do it knowingly or not. Mostly unknowingly. So we begin to be legalistic as if what we do, what we add, somehow we can add to Christ so that we might be accepted before God. That is a challenge to faithful living that pleases the Lord. We swing to legalism or self-righteousness. The other side is this, alright? Mark it. This idea of libertarianism or licentiousness. That's the other pendulum swing. 
Challenge to you being faithful before God. What is that? That's an attack on the grace of God. And we make His grace cheap grace. Why cheap grace? Because we begin this to throw our freedom around and flaunt it. Hey, I'm free in Christ, so I could do whatever I want. Let go and let God, right? That is the idea. There are many believers even who have that mentality. That it's all about my freedoms and my liberties. I'm free in Christ. Don't tell me how to live my life. And that is the other pendulum swing. Neither legalism, nor legalism, nor libertarianism on the other side, licentiousness, is Christ-centered, faithful living. Got it? Nor legalism, nor libertarianism that flaunts freedom is Christocentric, faithful living. Neither of those two things are Christ-honoring. That is a huge challenge to us. But God, but God did save you and I unto good works. Amen? And so we have a responsibility to look into this and examine this from the book of James. Now, the, one of the central things in James is this. In light of the fact that Christ is returning, and I want you to look, look at this with me, in James chapter 5, alright? James chapter 5 and verse 7. And we're going to flip around a lot, so just get ready for that, okay? In light of the king's return, James 5, verse 7, Therefore, James says, Be patient, brethren. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, be patient, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. James is very concerned throughout this book of the fact that the judge is coming. He is coming back. Christ is returning. His return is imminent. That means it can happen any moment. It can happen tonight. Praise the Lord if it would happen tonight. Amen? What are you to do as a follower of Christ in light of the fact that He's returning? How are you to live? He paints things black and white throughout his book with a pastor's heart, but he does not candy coat anything. He lets us have it big time. And he really gets into the essence of what discipleship is, the nature of discipleship. And I've been studying James for a few years now and just meditating on this book, and it has really, really impacted my own heart and my own life. And I pray that it would continue to do. And you know what I have found? Is that James, he was the oldest brother the oldest among Jesus' brothers. He was James the Just. That is who the author is here. James is ha- uh, Jesus' half-brother. And undoubtedly, you know where, he, where the flavor of this book really comes from? Jesus Himself. That's where it comes from. 
He gets into the nature of faith and the nature of what really discipleship is and the essence of discipleship. We get a flavor of that in the book of James. And you know what? It's perfectly normal that it would be very much like his own brother Jesus' perspective on life. Wouldn't it? He spent much time with Jesus. But James didn't really... We don't have any indication that James actually committed his heart and life to the Lord Jesus, to his own brother, believing in his person and in his work until post-resurrection. Isn't that amazing? That you could be so close yet so far away for so long, walking with Jesus, and yet he didn't embrace him. But in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the resurrection, he names James, this James, the just, Jesus' half-brother who Jesus appeared to. And I think it was during that time that James actually embraced the Lord. That is amazing. But James, throughout the book, of, uh, throughout this book, there is a very, very interesting flavor of, if you want to call it this, Jesus-esque, right? The essence of discipleship. Whatever Jesus taught throughout His life is very much all throughout this book. And so I want you to see where I get this from, Okay? Go back to Mark chapter 8. Just flip over to Mark chapter 8 with me. Where does James get this mentality of getting into the nature of faith and this black and whiteness and what it means to be a disciple, a true follower? Look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And verse 27. I want you to see this. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, it says that Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, saying, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, that is the Messiah, i.e. the King. And he warned them to tell no one about Him. Now if you have read the Gospels, you know one thing. Jesus was doing mighty works and speaking mighty words. But He was very careful because there were multitudes following after Him. Crowds were following after Him. There were disciples, followers, and then there were disciples of Jesus. There were those who were the crowds and the multitudes who would follow Him because they, were, they wanted to associate with Him. They wanted to be around Him. He was an intriguing figure. They were perhaps anticipating the fact that, hey, maybe this one's going to be the promised one who's going to deliver us from the yoke of Rome. And then there were His disciples who didn't quite understand Him fully. They were growing in their understanding. You get that sense through in the Gospels? But they knew that Christ was the one who can give them true life. Up until this point here, this is a huge transition in the book of Mark. This is a huge transition here. Because now Jesus openly is asking them straight out, who do people say that I am? What's the popular opinion about me? And they answer, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he even gets pinpointed with them. And he says, who do you say that I am? 
Who do you say that I am? Now, he's wanting to find out, you guys have walked with me? You have been with me? You have been around my miracles? You have heard my words? I have explained to you the deeper things? Who do you think that I am? And notice, Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. The parallel passage in Matthew 16, Jesus says to him, You, Peter, you have answered well, essentially. And upon this rock, your confession, I'm going to build my what? My church. What a confession right there. Jesus prompts straight out, explicitly, what is your confession regarding my identity? See? And now, then notice verse 31. Then he begins to tell them about his, the purpose of why he came, his purpose. Now he's going to talk about his resolute, he's fixed upon the cross. He's heading that direction. And he wants to start preparing his disciples now. And he says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. There's no ambiguity anymore. He wants them to know exactly what's going to happen. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Jesus, in verses 31 and following, and then if you cross-reference to chapter 9, verses 30 and following... And then chapter 10, verse 32 and following, three different times in the book of Mark, he begins to reveal about his suffering. He wants his disciples now to know that he's resolutely setting himself to go to the cross. They need to prepare themselves for this. He has been prepping them, and now he's explicitly telling them this is what's going to happen. And then, listen to this. This is where, where, where I want us to, to zero in on. And why it's pertinent to James. Notice verses 34 and following. Because this right here is what discipleship is. This is what it means to follow Christ. Verse 34, And Jesus summoned the crowd, there are multitudes, with His disciples. And you would think that Jesus, if He was concerned about keeping a large crowd following Him, maybe He'd do one of those popular preacher deals and give them a candy-coated message. There's no candy-coated message here. Notice this. Verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone, in other words, wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself. That is repentance. And take up his cross and follow me. See that? Black and white. There is no middle ground here. Jesus is not candy-coating anything. You want to follow Me? You want to be My disciple? Deny yourself. Die to yourself now if you want to follow after Me. That is His message. And notice verse 35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus essentially gives the essence of discipleship here. Here is the big deal. 
you must die to self and live for me. And beloved, that is the same message to us. And the same message of James. After spending so many years with his brother Jesus, that is where James is coming from. He's talking about what does it mean to be a faithful disciple? And it is this, dying to yourself daily. Dying to yourself and embracing Christ's goals, Christ's passions, Christ's aspirations for His people. We have such a warped view of what it means to follow the Lord. Amen? Amen. This has spoken to me. My commitment to the Lord has been challenged going through the book of James. And I think it's very much after the example of His own brother Jesus. That was His clear black and white call to those who wanted to follow after Him. Die to yourself. Embrace Me. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be faithful, be living faithfully on this earth. Dying to self. Think about it. In your service to the brethren here, if you keep in mind, as a disciple of the Lord, He's calling me to die to self, die to my desires, that I use my resources and my energy and everything for the service of His people, of my brethren. That's what it means to follow after Him. Dying to myself. When your name was written in the Lamb's book of life, that's what it was. That you have died to self and you're alive with Christ. Union with Christ. So go back to James. That is, I think, in essence, what's going on even in the book of James. People struggle with the book of James. There are many commentators and theologians and even pastors who struggle. How could it be? How how could we fit James within the, the canon of Scripture? How do, we, how do we harmonize Him with, with Paul and Romans, for instance? And you know what I would say? James is coming at it from a different angle. He's coming at our salvation from a different angle. He is exposing hypocrisy. He is exposing a warped view of what discipleship means. He's getting into the nature of what faith actually is, which is transforming faith. See? That is the point. That is what James continuously emphasizes here through the exhortations that he gives. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Faith is transforming in nature. And continually and continually, we're going to see James says this, practice what you profess to believe. Don't just say and speak a big talk. Live it. Live it. And that is the fruit that you really do believe what you're saying. Don't just speak it. We often think that faith is a mere profession. And it is a profession. It is something that we utter with our lips, with our hearts more deeply. However, it is transforming in nature. God regenerates the heart so that fruit follows. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. Think about that. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then He launches to give all of these characters, these people who have lived, and He talks about how they lived their lives. 
Notice that in Hebrews 11. Faith was transforming for these people. They followed through with faithful actions. They performed God-honoring decisions. They sacrificed themselves because they trusted in God. They practiced what they professed to believe. See that? They made obedient decisions in the most crucial moments of their pilgrimage here on earth. They sacrificed themselves for Christ. That is faith. Faith in action. Faithful living, beloved. We have such a warped view of what that means. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus essentially points out the same thing. Matthew chapter 7, He starts talking about false teachers. And He says in chapter 7 of Matthew verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their what? By their what? Fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And listen to this. This is a frightening, frightening statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's the profession. There's what we say with our lips. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We never had an intimate relationship. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We never had a relationship. And you know what even revealed that? That you practice lawlessness. You were disobedient. There was no loving obedience. That's really the message of James. That's the heart behind the book of James. You will know them by their fruit. James is concerned, as a good pastor would, about making sure that his followers are genuine, that Jesus' followers are genuine, that they're authentic, that their heart is there. That's what his concern is. The problem is is that we have created such a false dichotomy. You know what a dichotomy is, right? A division between two things. When we make a sharp distinction, we make two things in opposition to one another. Well, faith is not to be put that way with relation to works. That false dichotomy. Listen to me. Our works are not the root of our standing before God. Our works and our faithful living is not the root of our standing before God. Christ's person and work is the root. Christ's person and work are the root of our justification. The fruit is the works that He empowers us to be able to do. That's the fruit. Don't forget that. That's huge. The root is the person and the finished work of Christ. And the fruit is what God graciously produces in and through His Holy Spirit. 
James is not contradicting that at all. He's saying, you're a follower? You're a disciple? You hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Chapter 2, verse 1. You have faith in Him? Then live like it. Live like it. Live in light of His return. Are we living faithfully before Him, beloved? I want tonight and next week to be a heart-searching time for us. Heart-searching time. Because that's what James does. You know what he does in chapter 3? He essentially says, talks about the tongue and the power of words. Specifically with relation to teachers, but by, in, by, by extension to all of us in terms of what we speak. And essentially what he says is, open up. Like when you go to the doctor, he says, open up. Eh. And he wants to see your tongue? Why? Why does the doctor want to see your tongue? He wants to see your tongue because he wants to make sure, he's checking the vitals and he wants to make sure that you're okay. He's going to get an indication as he looks at your throat if you're potentially having some kind of a sickness. James does the same thing in James chapter 3. He says, open up. Open up. And I will show you that if you're using your tongue that way, what is going on with you in the way that you speak? You should be loving your brethren rather than using your mouth to destroy others. You're not being faithful to the Lord, the one whom you claim to follow, if that is the way you're treating others. Destroying them with your mouth, with your tongue. So he begins to expose and expose and expose and chisel away like a good surgeon at our hearts. And that is what I really, really want you to Look at this study as a time of heart searching. A time to put your heart on the table before the Lord and say, Lord, where am I not being faithful before You? Yes, my salvation is secure as long as my trust is in Christ alone. But I want to live faithfully because I love You and because I cherish You and because I want to live upholding You before a dark world. It is interesting as we look at some of the themes in James, there is this reference a couple of times. James uses very vivid imagery, imagery throughout his book to basically challenge us to this faithful life. And one of them is this double-minded man. Very interesting. Look at chapter 1 and verse 8. This double-minded man. He is so picturesque, like Jesus was very picturesque. Chapter 1 and verse 5. Let's read from there. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man, that man that lacks wisdom, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James says, if you lack wisdom, come to God and ask Him for wisdom in the midst of your trials. But do so knowing that He will deliver and that He's going to answer your prayers. Don't come to Him as a double-minded man, a dipsukos man, a two-souled man, a divided man. That's what it is. You've seen the, the, uh, the Batman... Uh, enemy figure, Two-Face. You've seen the movie Batman, right? Two-Face. One side, he's really, he's obviously normal. And the other side, terrible looking. Two-Face. James, that's what he's talking about here. 
Don't be divided. Don't be a double-minded person. Who you are on the outside should reflect who you are on the inside and vice versa. Don't profess something and not live it out. Don't be a two-souled man. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 8. Notice. Chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You divided man. You deceived man. He's pointing out throughout the book that our devotion can't be divided. If we're going to be faithful, we must be devoted to God wholeheartedly. That's what he's calling for here. I told the youth a couple of years ago, this is the sold out person for Jesus. This is a sold out person. Wholehearted commitment to Christ alone. And James, through the various exhortations, as we will see, seeks to get us to the point where we are thinking about wholehearted devotion, that we might not be divided in our our affections so as to live a life of hypocrisy. Unstable, unwavering. God wants, beloved, our total and complete surrender. God wants our total and complete surrender as His followers. He doesn't want you to be half in, half out. He wants you to be devoted to Him wholeheartedly. And James exposes this throughout. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, he talks about the fact that he he exposes their dividedness in terms of their failure to respond to trials. These readers, by the way, were Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. Here in the book of James. And they were scattered throughout outside, outside of Palestine. Probably, most probably, with relation to the murder of Stephen. You remember Stephen's murder? In Acts chapter 7? There's this murder of Stephen, and it says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, after Stephen's murder, it says, that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And what's interesting about that is when we look back in Acts chapter 1, that was all part of God's design. Whenever there's persecution, the gospel spreads. God uses the murder of Stephen to scatter his people outside of Palestine, but the gospel is going to spread. But these readers back in James are Jewish believers. We get that because throughout, it's very Jewish in its flavor. There are tons of references to the oneness of God, which was something that the Jews held on to, that God is one. To the law of liberty. All these references that are very Jewish in nature. These Jewish believers were going through persecution. Similar to the book of 1 Peter. They were being oppressed. They were being persecuted for the name of Christ. We get a glimpse of this even in James chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice what he says here. Come now, 5.1, Come now, you rich, 
Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You, the rich, have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. They were scattered all over the place and working under oppressive landowners too. And in the midst of that, it's so easy, it would be so easy for them to lose heart, would it not? How would they respond to trials? They're not rejoicing in the midst of trials. This is very difficult for them. James exposes that in chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. How are you responding to trials? And then in chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, he exposes the fact that they're not responding to the Word of God. How are we responding to the Word? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he exposes a lack of authentic, genuine love because they are being partial toward one another. In chapter one, uh, 2, verses 14 through 26, he talks about this, this dead faith without works, which is one of the controversial passages in, in Scripture. How could it be that we are justified by our works? So he talks about this. How can you say you believe that demons also believe and shudder? Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He's looking at the other side of the coin. The one who professes and professes and professes, but there's no evidence of the profession. That's what he's nailing at there. So he exposes that. He exposes their need to make sure that they are using their tongue for wisdom and not to destroy one another. In chapter 3, quarrels and conflicts in chapter 4. So obviously, there are things that James is exposing because they are not living faithfully in light of their circumstances. There's oppression, there's persecution for the name of Christ, and they are not walking before the Lord with integrity. They are divided in their devotion. They are shying away. So James powerfully exposes and exhorts them strongly to consistent conduct and attitudes with their profession of faith. Practice what you claim to believe. See, genuine discipleship is this, that you and I will follow the Lord Jesus, loving Him through faithful living as an expression of our profession of faith. See? That is the message over and over here in the book of James. Now, how are we going to approach this? In... One session and a half. I want to give you what I believe is the very peak and the climax of this book. And that is in chapter 4 and verse 4. Alright, so turn there. Chapter 4 and verse 4. And I want you to see this. Chapter 4 and verse 4 is really the climax, the peak of the letter of James. He's been dealing with different issues. And here, James is going to expose the heart of the matter. He's going to get down to the nitty-gritty, if you will. 
Here it is. Here is your main problem. Here's the reason why you're not responding to trials in a godly manner, seeking the wisdom of God. Here is the reason why you're not responding to the Word of God. Here is the reason why you're, you're being partial toward one another and you're not loving one another authentically and genuinely. Here is the reason why you're not walking in true wisdom. Building others up instead of tearing them down. Quarreling and fighting with one another. Here is your problem. And what does he say in verse 4? You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is a powerful, powerful exhortation. He strongly, in this passage and in the verses that follow, James calls at the very peak and climax of the letter, he calls for repentance. He exposes the heart of the problem. The reason why you're not responding well and living faithfully is because you're worldly. It's because you're adopting the world's thinking. Your devotion is divided. And he goes rapid speed through exhortations in verses 7 and following. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and so forth. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's like <laughs> rapid speed exhortations. To get us, once he exposes the problem that we are being adulterers in a spiritual sense... He, he's calling for repentance. See that? That is the very peak of the letter there, where he calls for single-hearted commitment and devotion to God. Beloved, one of our greatest hindrances is going to be the three enemies of the believer are what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. There is a world system, not the earth as we know it, the world system with its philosophies and ideologies and its outlook on life that we must reject if we're going to be faithful in this life. If we are, if we are adopting the world's thinking, then we are going against God and His purposes. And that is what James gets to here. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So he exposes this hypocrisy, this dividedness. I love, there's a, a scene in Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? There's a scene in Lord of the Rings where the hobbits, I don't remember which part it is, but the hobbits are basically find these giant trees that walk around really slowly and they reason through things very slowly. And so these hobbits are trying to convince these trees, hey, there's a war going on. And this war pertains to you. You need to go fight. You need to go fight. And they can't seem... These trees are just overthinking everything. And they're not going to go to battle because they don't understand what's going on. No, I, I don't think we're going to do that. You've seen it, right? The hobbits begin to lead them to the edge of this, this one place where they can, the trees are going to be able to behold the disaster. The enemy has come in and is wiping out the world, including their own. And they go and they show them this. And the trees obviously come to grips with this and they go to battle. 
That is essentially here what James is doing. He's bringing us to the edge and he's saying, here, you see everything that's going on here? You see your lack of response to trials? Your failure to respond to the Word of God the way that you should? Here is what's going on. The disaster is due to your worldliness. Your tendency to adopt the world. That is what he's doing here. And notice the terms that he uses to expose. Adulteresses. Why in the world would you call believers adulterers? Why would you do that? That signified, in, it was a picture of an unfaithful wife to her husband. If you write these down, Isaiah chapter 54 and verses 5 through 6, and Jeremiah 3 and verse 20, there the, the Old Testament picture is given of the relationship between God, the one true God of Israel, and His chosen precious people Israel. And God is, is pictured there as the husband. And Israel is the wife. There's this exclusive relationship that Israel, God's chosen nation, had with God, with Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And He calls them adulterers, unfaithful. You're unfaithful to Me. You have violated the exclusive relationship with Me. You cannot hold on to God and hold on to the world. We cannot do that. And James's readers were doing that. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? The concept of a friend is kind of an interesting thing for us today. We think of everybody's our friend. There's this kind of loose uh, term thrown out. Yeah, he's my friend. Yeah, he's my friend. And those is the concept of was of a sharing a partaking of a physical and spiritual benefits. And God here is saying, you have a friendship with the world. You are a partaker with the world. And in that, you are in opposition to me. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You want to be a best friend of the world, James says? You are an enemy of God. He stands directly opposed to you. That is a frightening, frightening exhortation, exhortation here. And then notice, or do you think that the Scripture, verse 5, speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want any competition in your life and in my life. James is exhorting them. God wants your single-hearted devotion. He wants your full commitment. And you are partaking of things with the world. God is a jealous God. So the problem is their unfaithfulness. Their devotion to the world. There is a divided devotion here. Now, some of you may be wondering, what, what does that look like? And I'm sure some of you can answer that. What does it mean to be adopting the world or to be worldly? It doesn't mean that we are to isolate ourselves from everything in the world, does it? No. We're, ca we're called to be a salt on the earth. We're called to be a light to the world. We can't leave the world. We are called to be a light in the midst of the world, in the midst of this society. I think that there are various things that this refers to. Is 
the world shaping your perspective. I want to challenge us tonight to that. How is the world shaping your perspective and your outlook on life? The glasses through which you see life. How are you perceiving life? All you got to do is just turn on the television or look at the billboards and see how society, for instance, portrays the family. And in these shows, the man is this wimp. Is this wimp who sits around passive, watching TV, eating Twinkies all day long. He is a wimp. He's a pushover. He does not pursue his wife. He does not pursue raising up his children. He doesn't engage his wife. He is a wimp. And unfortunately, in the church, we have adopted that type of thinking. We have a lot of passive men. We all struggle with that. We have a lot of men who don't take their role before their wives to shepherd their wives and shepherd their kids very seriously. We have adopted the world's perspective on what manhood is instead of looking at what biblical manhood is. God's perspective. We are adulterers in that sense. We are being unfaithful to what God requires of us. Amen? We do that. What about the portrayal of women in these shows? Women are adopting this thing that either one, they are going to be passive to themselves in the home, or they're going to be the ones that run the show in the home. They're going to be the ones that are going to go out to the workplace or whatever. And I'm not knocking on women who work, alright? I'm talking about this, watching these shows and these women who are basically saying, you know what? I'm every woman, I go out and I do my thing. And who are you men to tell me anything? We adopt that in the church. We adopt this authoritarian, this feministic type of mentality. I don't think that James was addressing anything different there. A principle for us today is, don't adopt the world's thinking as it relates to the family. We adopt a worldly type of thinking. We become a friend of the world when we do that. Do we have a worldly view or a godly view of the family, beloved? What is another thing? Another aspect of this, what this worldliness looks like? What about adopting the attitudes of the world? The attitudes of the world. Our attitude towards success. It's all about success. It's all about me being fulfilled and money and my retirement fund and all of that. And again, I'm not knocking on that. What I'm saying is is that if that drives us, success and money and materialism, we are going to be divided in our devotion. If that is our main thing, our main passion in life. It's good to plan. And James will talk to us about that. That if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that. We should plan, but always keeping God at the center. Keeping a God consciousness. Depending upon Him. There's nothing wrong with planning. But beloved, we can't adopt the attitude of the world that it's all about success and satisfying myself and materialism and how many toys can I get. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And we forget about the fact that that's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. 
And what's going to matter is, were you faithful to your Lord? Amen? Were you faithful to Him? So we can be worldly in the way that we adopt the attitudes of the world as well. What about adopting the world's priorities? What about it with regards to our priorities? What, let me ask you this, what dictates where you personally, don't think about others right now, what dictates where you personally put your energy? Where you spend most of your time? How you use your resources? What are you passionate about? What drives you to put the time that you put into certain things? Is it luxury? Is it comfort? Nothing wrong with relaxation. We all need that to rest and to be refreshed. We need that. But sometimes we use that to condone all kinds of just flippant living. That is not devoted and committed to putting in time to the service of God and His people. Where are your priorities? Where are your resources and your time and your energy going to? I think James is going to address some of that throughout this book. What are you to prioritize? You know what it is? Love for God and love for His people. That's where your priority should lie. What about your goals? Your goals for this life. What about your goals? Many times we... if Just try to catch yourself this week or maybe in the weeks and months ahead. Think about as you begin to... You know, I need to accomplish such and such a thing and accomplish such and such a thing. And I need to make sure that, that I accomplish this thing in five years. And ask yourself the question, is that God-centered? Is that about fulfilling God's goals in this world because of what Christ has done? Or is it all about accomplishing your goals and your aspirations and your desires and your success? See, we are so quick to adopt the world's type of philosophy. There are these fortresses that the world has of thinking that we adopt. And it's dangerous because it all begins, as Pastor Karn said this morning, in our what? In our what? In our thinking. Our mindset. And if we are filling our minds with the thinking of the world and adopting how they think, this world system then we're going to be divided in our devotion. We are going to be directly in opposition to God. James's message is this. God wants your wholehearted devotion. James says, I'm going to draw a line in the sand right here. Here's a line in the sand. Nice and dark. You're either in or you're out. You either manifest that you're a part of God's people or you're not. By the way that you live, by your commitments, by your devotion. And here in this, the peak, the climax point of the book, he calls for repentance. And the message is very loud and clear. You and I must reject worldliness if we are going to be devoted in our attitudes, in our thinking, in our conduct, in our priorities, in our perspective to Almighty God. We must reject worldliness, beloved. Listen to the language. I'm going to read verse 4 again. You adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Listen to this. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is He calling for here? If you see this issue, this sin in your life, that, you know what, Pastor Kempis, I am, I am very much adopting the world's thinking in many of these areas. You know what? As strong as James is, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Don't be proud. The first step is to put yourself under God's lordship and commit yourself to obeying God in all things and rejecting worldly thinking. Humble yourselves. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's calling for external cleansing and internal purity in our hearts. You double-minded. Don't be a two-souled person. A divided person. And notice, this is very, very... um, Serious type of language because he wants us to take sin seriously. Be miserable and be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. See? The path to receiving and being prepared for the grace of God, beloved, is to humble ourselves. We need those reminders. We need those powerful reminders of needing to humble ourselves before Almighty God. Amen? We cannot think of examples in our lives where we are adopting the world's thinking. This is the climax of the letter here. Mark it. Because as we go back in the rest of our time and then next week, we're going to see how He deals with, the, with different issues which really have to do with whether you're going to be devoted to the Lord or devoted to the world. In a society where they were being persecuted and there were all kinds of trials being experienced by these believers, they needed to be reminded of how to live in the light of the return return of the King. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming is the message in chapter 5. Be patient. He's returning. But reject the world's type of thinking. Now, that being the climax of the letter in chapter 4, I want you to go with me to chapter 1. Alright? Rather than adopting the world's thinking, embracing the world's thinking, what we need to do is be filling our minds and our hearts with the Word of God. With the Word of God. And I want you to see this. What is our response to the Word of God? Listen to what chapter 1, verse 19 says. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And then verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Central to our renewing of our minds, rejecting the world and the world's thinking, is our response to the Word of God. I love the fact that at Calvary Bible Church, there's such an emphasis in reading the Scriptures, in hearing the preaching of the Word of God. You are here faithfully on a Sunday night when you could be resting because you're hungry for the Word. And I'm so grateful for that. There's such a wonderful emphasis in our church. And we need to continue to hunger for the Word of God and internalize the Word of God and allow the Word of God, as we spoke about last Sunday night, to dwell in us richly. That it would fully make its home and habitation in our hearts so that what would pour out from us is Bible. But not just knowledge. Not just knowledge. But we read the Word of God and we internalize the Word of God because of the person revealed in the Word of God. Amen? Because of Jesus. Because we want to know Him. And we want to love Him. If we're going to be rejecting the world, then we need to be pursuing and responding to the Word of God in the right manner, beloved. And I want us to start tonight in the last ten minutes looking at this. A few years ago, I remember visiting... Peru. You guys remember the massive earthquake in Peru? Massive earthquake in Peru a few years ago. I actually uh, flew with another brother in our, my previous ministry to Peru three days after that massive earthquake. And we landed on the ground. There were, there were churches, 25 churches that we were working with already. So we were going to go visit them. We are going to go deliver a money gift uh, for some, to, to basically form these kitchens in the corner of different streets. Not streets like ours, dirt streets and shacks kind of a thing. And so we get there, and we start interacting with the people, and it was devastating in Peru. It was just devastating in Pisco, Peru, which was a big tourist attraction place for surfers. Devastating. We get there, and we're interacting with the people, and the churches, uh, some of the pastors are there. The churches are, and the pastors are the ones that are basically opening up the little kitchens, pots and pans, and serving beans to the people. These little boys are walking up with these little girls and they're feeding them or giving them a shot or giving them antibiotics or whatever because of the infections that are going to form because of all the dead people lying around all over the place. It was just a devastating time. And then, one of those days, the last day before we, we were going to leave, one of the pastors said to us, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do a service tonight. We want you to come. We want you to be a part of the service. We don't know how many people are going to show up. Pastor such and such is coming. I forget the pastor's name from Ecuador. He's flying in because he used to be here with us and he's going to preach tonight. And we want to get together. So we're thinking, wow, I don't know. We, I don't know if we want to stick around. 
So we stuck around, and when we entered this place, it was a place that half of the roof had fallen off already. And it was packed. 250 people plus kids in that place. All over the floor, kids laying down, adults, grandmas, mamas, daddies, everybody was in there. It was amazing. And the message that day was Psalm 139. That night, the preacher goes off and he starts preaching and preaching and preaching the psalm. And it was amazing. I'll never forget it. The people were crying and he's preaching about the greatness and the majesty of God and the hope that we have in Him. And then I look over. I'm sitting in the front row because they wanted to honor us. So we're sitting in the front row and I look over and there's this little boy. There's this little boy who is six or seven years old. And he's standing over there as the pastor is preaching. And you know what he has in his hand? He's got a Gideon Bible. A Gideon Bible, all torn up. Some of the pages were kind of detached. He had his little pencil, like this tiny little thing like this, little pencil, writing on this little Bible. And afterward, I went up to the little boy and I said, Hey, how you doing? Bring him over and I sat him on my lap and I started interacting with him. And I said, "Who?" I said, Do you, do you, do you love the Word? He says, yes, yes, I love the Word. Who gave you that Bible? Oh, there was a man that came a year ago and he gave it to my mama. He gave her three or four of these Bibles and, and we've been passing it around. A Gideon Bible. This little boy, seven years old, had a hunger for the Word of God that many of us would love to have. Genuine believer. And in the midst of this massive earthquake and devastation, he was hungry for the Scriptures. He wanted to know God. I wonder how hungry we are for the Word of God. I wonder how much we cherish the Scriptures that we have. Many countries in this world don't have study Bibles, beloved. They don't have the privilege of laptops where we could stick the Scriptures in the laptop. We have three, I have seven or eight Bibles in my office. Try to give them away. I keep getting more and more. There's places where the Word of God is not available like that. See? Do we love the Scriptures so as to respond to them in a way that pleases the Lord where we're filling our minds with His Word? Do you treasure God's Word like that? And I want you to see this. First of all, In the last few minutes here, I want us to just kind of start here. I want you to see in verses 19 through 20 that we need to listen to the Word of God with eagerness. We need to listen to the Word of God with eagerness. Notice, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You want to be pleasing to the Lord in your behavior? You want to grow in the Lord? Then you must be quick to hear. And he's going to talk about what that means right now. Eagerly listening to the Word of God. That's what this implies. This attentiveness. This readiness to receive and embrace the message. See, we sit down on a Sunday morning and we think, Pastor Carnes has a great responsibility to deliver a message today. He's prepped. 
he is doing, he's going to have to be very clear in his communication. And we put all the responsibility on the pastor who's going to get up there. And he is, and I've spoken to Pastor Tim, he is under the, the, the majesty of the Lord wanting to be pleasing to the Lord in every respect when he gets up there. But listen, don't lose sight of the fact that you have, as much as the expository preacher has a responsibility to communicate clearly to you the Word of God, the unadulterated Word of God, you need to be an expository listener. Get that? You need to hear with readiness. Be ready to receive and embrace the Word of God. And I think that what he's addressing here in their case is this hastiness, this thoughtless reaction to what was heard. This argumentation, this slow to speak, he says. Be slow to speak. We love to be opinionated. We want to give our opinions right away. But we're, we have a difficult time listening and hearing. And he says, slow to anger. This implies a strong, persistent feeling of indignation, of active anger, a disposition of bitterness and dislike. One who reacts in rash and reckless speech that wounds. See that? We need to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and rather eager and attentive to listen to God's Word. And he gives the reason. Man's anger, as a general rule, does not bring the righteous life that God desires. Human anger never produces or brings about the righteousness that is approved by God. It never produces the desired righteousness in ourselves or in others, beloved. We need to instead be eagerly listening to the Word of God. I think that's what he's getting at here. I remember in my youth just memorizing songs in my, in my unbelieving days that have never left me. As much as I try, I want to get them out of there, I cannot get them out of there. And so what I try to do now, since the Lord has saved me, is just really memorize Scripture. Read and read and read, internalize it and meditate. How do you get that trash out of my head? You know. You know what that's like. Trying to renew your thinking. And in this entertainment-driven society, beloved, it's so easy to become dull in our hearing. We want to be entertained. We want to just pop in the movie. Or we want to just get in front of something that's where, where it's all coming to us and there's no response. There's no effort demanded on our part. We need to be eager listeners to God's Word. Eager listeners. It is interesting. You've read the book of Deuteronomy. Time and time again, there's, those are a series of sermons by Moses. And over and over again, what is he saying? Remember. Remember. Remember the great acts of God. Remember what Yahweh has done for you. Remember. Why? Because of our tendency to be so easily forgetful. And we're no different today. If we're not careful, we can adopt this worldly mindset that it's all entertainment, and if it's not entertaining me, why should I engage my thinking in it? Why should I listen? This is so central to being faithful in your life. Internalizing the Word of God. Eagerly listening. And we're going to see that that doesn't complete the circle. 
That doesn't complete the circle in this passage. Because next week what we're going to look at is what does it mean to then humbly welcome the Word of God into your life? Humbly welcome the Word of God into your life. And then carefully apply the Word of God. And we're going to see in verses 22 through 27 that we need to complete the circle of a right response to the Word of God. It isn't just enough to listen and to hear. You have to welcome it into your life and then you have to take that and apply it. That's the whole point that James is getting at. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Rejecting worldly thinking, putting the Word of God into practice. Interesting that he hits at this here. It is so central to our understanding of the book of James. If we're going to be faithful followers of Christ, then we must be Word-driven individuals. Word-driven individuals. And we're going to get into that a little more deep next week. Alright? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much. We thank You for the richness of Your Word, Lord. We thank You for the conviction of Your Word. Father, I pray that we might not be divided in our devotion to You. That we might be wholehearted. That our priorities might not be divided continually. That our passions might not be divided, Lord. And when they are, Father, help us to come to the cross and to be reminded of the wonderful grace that You have extended to us in Your Son, Lord. How much He has done for us. Help us, Lord, to be faithfully living in this world in anticipation of His return as an act of love because we cherish Him, because we love Him, Lord. Help us to practice what we profess to believe, Lord. Out of love to You. And we ask these things in Your precious name. Amen.